The following audio is brought to you by Emmanuel Baptist Church in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. More information about our church can be found at emmanueltuscaloosa.org. All right. Um, this packet is deceptively thick because it's mostly scripture references. Um, and I'll go ahead and point out on the back, I've got a leader guide, so I don't, mine is a little bit different than yours, but if you flip towards the very back, I'll probably print these every week. Um, I've tried to give you a, a bibliography of the resources that I have used in putting these packets together. The very first one under bibliography has kind of given the structure to this block. Uh, it's uh, a core seminar um, from Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C. called Suffering for God's Glory. That's kind of given the, the bones of this. And then some other books that I have either read through or am citing uh, throughout. Um, if you are interested in reading more on this topic, any and all of the books on that list would be ones that I would recommend to you. Um, probably my favorite on that list is the one by Thomas Watson called All Things for Good. Um, they have it in the Puritan paperback series, and they've updated some of the language, um, so it's a lot more readable for a modern audience. That one is a fantastic treatment of Romans 8. Um, if, if these things are interesting to you, but um, maybe you don't feel like you have a ton of time for reading, um, the one by Ligon Duncan is an excellent, very short book. It's actually just two sermons. He preached uh, sermons on two different psalms of lament, and they have preserved his manuscripts in just a tiny little book that you can get through in you know, almost no time. That is uh, an excellent little work. Um, but there are um, some good books on that list. I'm currently reading Suffering by Paul David Tripp. Everything I've read by Paul Tripp has been really encouraging and helpful. That's another one I, you know, I'm halfway through it I think I could commend to you. Um, you'll see Psalms of Lament. There's a significant amount of the um, Psalms that are um, Psalms of Lamentation. So if you'd you know, like to explore that in, in the Bible, there's um, a lot of psalms that may be helpful for you. And then um, the last section on there is songs and hymns. Songs in our song library that in some way, shape, or form reflect uh, our, our suffering, our trials, our leaning on and dependence on the Lord in the midst of those things. There's a significant number of them, actually. As I, as I made that list and I went through our song lyrics, I was struck with... Uh, how many deal with that. So um, take that and use it as you will. Today we are um, again dealing with the idea of the problem of suffering, which is something of a misnomer. Um, in, in the world that God made um, that includes suffering, we want to be careful when we say the problem of suffering, because when people say that, often what they're talking about gets back to a conversation we had a few weeks ago when I filled in for Michael on the cults, is the idea that um, there is, uh, and it, well, you can look to your packet now, that the Christian life is caught up in the tension between our experience of suffering and its apparent conflict with God's character. And so we talked about that several weeks ago in... Um, you know, common atheist arguments about the existence of God, the goodness of God, is squaring 
human suffering, or not just human suffering, but especially human suffering, with God. If God is good, if God is just, if God is kind, if God is holy, if God is sovereign, then often you'll hear the argument of, well, a good God wouldn't let fill-in-the-blank happen. And so the, the philosophical solution to that for some people is God cannot be both good and in control. He's either good and unable for whatever reason to do something about it, or he's not good. Um, and we're hopefully going to see the perfect goodness of God and the sovereignty of God not in conflict with one another as we work our way through this. Um, that being said, for Christians, suffering is both a challenge to faith and an opportunity for faith to grow and to mature. In, uh, in the notes that I was reading in preparation for this, I thought it was kind of helpful. Um, the, the folks that wrote the, the core seminar for the Washington, D.C. course said, uh, your life now as a Christian this is your last opportunity to suffer well. And when we think about that, it kind of helps reshape our thinking about, about suffering and God's purposes for it. So this is, our, this is our last opportunity to suffer well. The Bible is clear that we should expect suffering. I've got some passages cited for you. I hope these are in order in your verse packet. I'll be doing a lot of flipping back and forth just for the sake of time. Jesus said in John 16, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. I think a lot of times when I read John 16, I like to skip to the end where Jesus says, take heart, I have overcome the world. And in the world you, have, you will have tribulation. It's like, well, but Jesus has overcome that, right? So, will I? Yes, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. What was the first one, what, Timothy? I'm sorry. The blank. The Christian life is caught up in the tension between our experience and its apparent conflict with God's character. Paul says in Romans 8.18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Again, it's easy to lean on the weight of eternal glory, but diminish the present suffering now. Its reality, its intensity, God's purposes for it. James 1, 2, and 3, James says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And then 1 Peter 4.12, Peter's very straightforward. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. So the Bible does not leave us in any doubt about whether or not suffering is a reality in the life of a Christian. It is to be expected. God has good purposes for it. It is characteristic of this present age. So, my goal will be 
over the next 12 or 13 weeks to try and unpack and apply a biblical view of suffering. I mentioned some of the books that I made use of for this uh, that I think would be a help and encouragement to you, um, maybe for your own sake or for people you know that may be going through various things. Um, and so I hope those resources at the end of the packet will be, uh, will be useful to you. I, I plan to print them each week. Um, but moving on into the origin of suffering. Um, that's, a good, that's a good question. Um, because I think James is a little helpful to us here. James 1, 2, and 3 talks about trials of various kinds. So I think suffering is going to be um, manifold in our experience of it. Uh, suffering might take the form of uh, health issues, conflict in relationships, um, the fact that there is death in the world is a reflection of suffering, natural disasters and their impact on people and environments is a form of suffering, uh, persecution of Christians for their following of the Lord is a form of suffering. So um, I think we could make a very, very long list of uh, kinds of suffering. Um, does, that, does that answer your question? Were you looking for... Yeah. Yeah. If I if I wanted like right now if I wanted to say something succinct like that, I might say um that suffering is the the experience of the world as it should not be and will not be. Should not might be too strong because I don't want to um I don't want to overplay my hand on the sovereignty of God, but certainly our experience of suffering is that which will not be eternally and was not when creation was made and declared to be very good. So anything that falls short of God's definition of very good, I think, would fall into the category of suffering. Um, Yeah, so that's where I want to be careful with the should nots, especially presently, because the existence of sin and suffering in the world is not something that God was like, I did not see that coming. If only I had known, I would have created a different world. Um, that's not, I think, a right view of God's providence and um, superintention over the world that he has made, nonetheless, you see from the passages I've cited from Genesis, the refrain in creation, and it was good, and it was good, and it was good, 
and it was good, and it was very good. And then you look to the consummation of all things and the return of Christ, and you see the restoration, the making of all things new, the end of suffering. I will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more suffering, no more pain, no more death, no more crying, no more mourning. And so we see Scripture bookended with creation in perfection, in a state that God calls good. And in between the fall and the return of Christ, suffering is characteristic of the world we live in. Things are as they will not be and were not. Maybe that's more along the lines of what you were asking in a definition of suffering, which is a good question. Um, and I'll, I'll mention this now. Um, the, the illustration of, the, of Gabe and the package. I had a conversation with a member of this church, it been years ago, and I asked him how he was doing. And like we so often do, like I so often do, kind of the stereotypical Christian answer is, I'm fine. You know, we're doing fine. And uh, he, I pressed into that a little bit, and he said, well, you know, we've got some things going on, but there are so many people in this church suffering more than we are. And I affirmed the truth that like, the things that they're going through might not you know, be as intense as a cancer diagnosis or the death of a loved one or, or whatever, if we're going to rank you know, how bad sufferings are. But you've got the trials that you've got. That's what the Lord has brought to you at this moment. And to try and diminish them and say, well, it's not as bad as somebody else. Well, that may be true, but that's what the Lord has brought to you. And so uh, from, a, from a ministerial standpoint and talking to a friend, what I didn't want him to hear was, yeah, you're right, you're fine. Get over it. Suck it up, you big baby. You know, Call me when you have the terminal diagnosis. I think we want to affirm the fact that we all face trials and suffering of various kinds, and the fact that they may not be as, you know, bad as our neighbor, I think it's insensitive to say, well, so what's the threshold then, right? At what point of suffering do we start caring about somebody and say, all right, now you're on my prayer list. You know, last week, you know, your hangnail, not going to cut it. But, you know, this week, you know, the scan's not turning out so well. All right, now, now you got it. So one of the things I hope that this building block will do is uh, also increase our effectiveness in ministering to other people and caring for them in their suffering. Um, I hope so. Um, so the, the creation refrain is that God created everything good. And the Bible insists upon God's sovereignty over all things, including suffering. Some passages that illustrate that. Deuteronomy 32, 39. See now that I, even I, am He, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. And there is none that can deliver out of my hand. Exodus 4, 11. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Isaiah 45, 7. I form light and I create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Amos 3.6 Is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? 
Daniel 4.35, all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Proverbs 16.33, the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. So we don't want to take the path of what some people um, fall into of what's called open theism. Open theism is basically the idea that there is a God, but he does not have knowledge of the future. He can react with things that are happening, but he does not know what will happen. Um, It's a slightly, uh, I guess, different theological system than um, deism, which is the idea, I think Michael talked about that recently, where God is uh, described sort of like a watchmaker. He, he sets things in motion and just lets them go and, and doesn't uh, interact, intervene. Um, he, there is no such thing as providence. He just he creates it and lets it go, like a spinning top. Um, I think both of those are, are problematic and fall short of how God has revealed himself in passages like these. Yes, sir? The putting things in motion and letting them go? Yeah, and I, I think you will find that those kind of thoughts about God, again, often come from the wrestling between can he be good and sovereign? So, in, in what you described, <laughs> there's really not goodness or sovereignty, right? I, I'm not in control, and I don't care to be in control. Yeah. Um, so the Bible insists on God's sovereignty over all things. And those passages that we read, uh, the Lord does not mince words about His providential rule over all things. Down to calamities that strike, maladies with people. He does as He pleases, and w- which then kind of creates the idea of the problem of suffering then. If God is good, if God is love. I told you all weeks ago about the bumper sticker that I saw on that car that had the um, Church of Satan logo on it. I'm trying to remember what it said. If God is good, or if there is a God, then why does he allow such suffering or something like that? That's people wrestling with Bible's claims about the goodness and the sovereignty of God. So then we need to go into the garden and see the fall. The sin of Adam and Eve put them at odds with the Lord and with each other. We see um, in in Genesis 2 and 3 the... uh, the story of the creation of, of Adam and Eve and then their fall into sin, taking of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and you see God's curse on them for their disobedience. Genesis three sixteen to 19 is cited on your, on your verse packet. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. 
In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So Adam and Eve had been given that mandate, right, to be fruitful, to be multiply, to tend and keep the garden, and what is cursed as a result of their sin, their fruitfulness in keeping the garden, and their future fruitfulness in bearing children and extending the garden's borders around the world. God curses their labor. He curses childbearing. Of course, we see the serpent also cursed. But we see pain and suffering enter the world here on the heels of Adam and Eve sinning. And through a doctrine we refer to as federal headship, we see ourselves as recipients of the same curse. In Adam all die. The Bible, however, does anticipate the future return of Christ and the people of God once again dwelling with Him for all eternity, free from sin, suffering, and death. I, re I referenced this a few minutes ago, but didn't read it. Revelation 21, 1-4. So we have the bookend of God creating everything very good, and then the consummation, Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither there shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. So these are the great bookends of the Bible, if you will. The original goodness and fellowship with God that Adam and Eve enjoyed. The restoration of fellowship with God. I will dwell with them as their God and they will be, my, be with my people. And what has to be eradicated for that to take place? Sin, suffering, and death have to be eradicated. And will be. Uh, I found this quote from uh, Don Carson helpful. Between the beginning and end of the Bible, there is evil and there is suffering. But the point to be observed is that from the perspective of the Bible's large-scale storyline, the two are profoundly related. Evil is the primal cause of suffering. Rebellion is the root of pain. Sin is the source of death. This is where um, wrestling with the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of people is kind of where the rubber meets the road with our, our theology. The Bible nowhere, never rests the responsibility for sin at the feet of God. We don't look at God and say, you caused this, this is your fault. So God is not morally responsible for sin. What we don't want to do in saying that is to diminish Everything God said about himself in some of those passages that we read, where he is providentially ruling and reigning over all things, including suffering. Um, another quote here that uh, I found helpful in Jonathan Edwards kind of wrestling with these things. I don't think this is on your packet. 
Edwards argues, willing that sin exist in the world is not the same as sinning. God does not commit sin in willing that there be sin. So in creating a world in which he knew there would be sin, and that he was providing Jesus Christ as the lamb slain from before the foundation of the world, God does not commit sin in willing that there be sin. God has established a world in which sin will indeed necessarily come to pass by God's permission, but not by his positive agency. God doesn't will sin as sin for the sake of anything evil, though it be his pleasure so to order things, that he permitting, sin will come to pass, for the sake of the great good that by his disposal shall be the consequence. This is where I think it's very helpful. If it were not right that God should decree and permit and punish sin, there could be no manifestation of God's holiness in hatred of sin or showing any preference in his providence of godliness before it. There would be no manifestation of God's grace or true goodness. If there was no sin to be pardoned, no misery to be saved from. So, we hold... Tension is not the right word, maybe apparent tension. We hold in apparent tension the sinless perfection of God and the sovereignty of God in seeing that He has created a world in which He willed sin would be. He foreknew it. He knew these things were going to happen. And He is pleased to use them as a demonstration of His holiness and justice and His mercy. And without which we would not see the glorious display of His justice and mercy and holiness. Does that make sense? Um, questions about that before we move on? The, the dirty diaper is maybe a more apt metaphor than you even intended, or maybe you did. <laughs> yes, God's... Um, I think we also need to go one step further than foreknowledge. There is, there is intent in God in the things that He has made. And it's not that, you know, He sees Adam and Eve sin and go, all right, well, initiate plan B, Right? He knows in purposes for His glory to be manifested even in creating a world in which sin would exist. That is the world into which Christ comes as rescuer. And that, according to Ephesians 2, is to the praise of His glory. And if I, I believe that the primary motive of God is His own glory. I think it is good and right that God glorify Himself. And our part in creation is enjoying His glory forever. Our enjoyment of His glory um, exists to the, degree, to, the, to the degree to which we see that displayed. And we see His glory displayed in His judgment on sin and His holding forth Christ as the Redeemer from sin. So, the dirty diaper metaphor I think is helpful insofar as we see God's foreknowledge of it, but I think the Bible takes us a step further into God's intentions while not holding him as the morally responsible agent for sin. Timothy, did you have a 
something. Yeah. I didn't. I didn't bring this passage out, and so I, um, I, I hesitate to try and, and cite it because I know I'm not going to get the quotation right. But we see that in the Old Testament that God uses the Babylonians to bring judgment on people, and then judges the Babylonians for the way they treated God's people. Um, that is a there. There is a category of sovereignty and providence that is very hard for us to encapsulate metaphorically in the complete, perfect knowledge and wisdom and power of God, um, which creates some of these apparent tensions when we wrestle with the sovereignty of God and the moral responsibility of people. Paul wrestles with that in Romans, and what he comes to is, well, who are you to answer back to God, right? He doesn't give us the satisfactory answer I think we want there. He tells us, he's the potter and you're the clay. I don't know if I, I think that I have a, um, a quote from, or a reference to Martin Luther's The Bondage of the Will, maybe next week, um, and Luther has some helpful things in, in kind of helping us sort through some of those things, I think, and I think you see in the garden, pre-fall, Adam and Eve with the ability to choose what is right and to choose what is wrong. In choosing sin, the, the will of man is subject to the fall now. And so I think our experience of the freedom of the will is of a different nature than Adam and Eve pre-fall. And so now I think our, our choices, our moral choices, are consistent with our nature. So in inheriting a sin nature from Adam, our, our capability for making choices that are objectively morally good in the eyes of God are impossible. The Bible says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Ephesians 2, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body of mind. And we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So our inheritance of sin nature has shattered our... When we think of free will, are, like, are we talking about, like, I go through the potluck line and I can choose turkey or ham, like that sort of free will? Or am I able in my own nature to choose what is right in the eyes of God? And I think that is what is broken in sin, that our nature is not inclined towards God, but is actually bound in sin. And what Christ does in his death and resurrection is breaks that power over people, and by his grace calls, the, Lazarus come forth is 
I think, an apt metaphor for the calling of sinners unto salvation. So I, I think we, we could say something about the freedom of, uh, of the will, especially pre-fall. Now, our will, outside of Christ, is inclined towards what is evil. And that, that is a big problem. Um, and you'll see, you know, again, that's another thing that different theological systems will try and solve in various ways. So what did Christ's death accomplish? Did it make people savable? Is there grace that goes out to everybody and restores that free will? Some theological systems describe the death of Christ and its efficacy that way. I, I do not hold to that. Um, and we will, we will press further into these things, but um, laying free will uh, out there in terms of an explanation for the way things are now is helpful insofar as we see what our free will gets us. It doesn't get us salvation. It gets us the world that we've got. We make choices that are consistent with our nature, and our nature is a sin nature outside of Christ, and only a sin nature outside of Christ. Um, Oh, sure, yeah. I mean... Yeah, and I'm glad you said that, Timothy, because I want to play off of what you said about suffering not where we are, are not getting what we want. Forgive me for not getting that quite right. Um, in the providence of God... The suffering he brings us is what we need. And that's really remarkable, that suffering then in a world that God superintends is not without purpose. And that's why I think views of God that diminish his sovereignty are ultimately hopeless. Because you look at, how could James be telling us the truth when he says, count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds? Why should I count it all joy if God is not superintending what happens in my life? Is it just a roll of the dice? I mean, how could I, how could I meet trials of various kinds with joy with any certainty that the testing of my faith produces steadfastness? Who tests faith in order to produce steadfastness? Satan doesn't do that. God tests faith in order to produce steadfastness. So what certainty do I have that my suffering has any purpose whatsoever if God is not in control of all things in creation? Um... You mentioned Joseph. That's a great example in, in the Bible of competing intentions in suffering. Job is a great example, and that's where we're going next in our packet, that we see Satan and sinful people with evil intentions. This climaxes at the cross, and we see God's good intentions. Who wins? Well, it seems that this isn't light side versus dark side, and we're trying to see who battles it out. We actually see God superintending that and his intentions prevailing.
I'm trying to think if there's a, uh, a question there I should address or... No, that, that's fine. Um, yeah. Whether or not we would characterize that as suffering might be a different, a different, a different question. Sure. If you want to know what's in your heart, there's nothing like suffering that's going to reveal that to you. Um, some of you, probably a lot of you in here, know that um, my own testimony of, of coming to know the Lord was through the death of my older brother. Um, I was a freshman at UA. My brother was a, almost four years older than me, so he was like 21, 22 years old. He had a heart condition that we had known about for a long time that he was living with, but um, a sudden illness about with pneumonia, and just within you know, 24 hours, he, he died. And I was not a Christian at the time. And in, so you, like freeze frame right there, Okay. Countless people have stories like that, right? We, we could go around town and ask people about suffering that they faced, and you're going to meet lots and lots of people with stories of, of heartbreak and loss. And again, and some of those people end up with bumper stickers on their car that said, if God was good, this wouldn't have happened. And I, I had no... My worldview didn't comport with... I didn't know, I didn't know what to do with that. Um, but in the providence of God, and for those of you who have been around Emmanuel a long time, longer than me, will remember Brooke and Dan Parks. Um, Dan was teaching the college Sunday school class at the time, and lo and behold, who was my English professor that semester? Dan's wife, Brooke. Um, they knew about what had happened. They were the first ones to invite me here, and it was the, the love and testimony of this church that God was pleased to use in bringing me to faith. And in his providence, he used the death of my brother in that. So you can look at, at death and say, this is not good. Death is an enemy which will be defeated, ultimately. And yet, God superintends all things such that he accomplishes his good purposes even through those things. He used the death of Lazarus as a testimony to being the source of eternal life for all who will believe in him. He is in control of these things. So we, we hold these things in apparent tension, and it's comforting to know that they are not in conflict in the mind of God. Um, 
Looking at Job real quick, Job's suffering was not a result of judgment on his sin. Job is presented to us as a man who was an innocent, quote-unquote, sufferer. Not that he was sinless, but that particular sin is not the reason for which he suffered. We need to have a category for that that Job's friends didn't have. We don't live in just a cause-and-effect world where do good, good happens, do bad, bad happens. He's presented to us in one one as a man who was blameless and upright, who feared God and turned away from evil. You see Satan in his provocation. I think wanting to test God and Job. And uh, Job in 2.10 tells his wife, Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Satan, I think it's interesting that in the story of Job, Satan is the one coming after Job, but Job doesn't say God gave and Satan took away. He says the Lord gave and the Lord take away. And it says in 2.10, Job did not sin with his lips. He sees not all of the things going on in the spiritual realm, but he holds God to be sovereign and good. And so... He's willing to accept what comes from the hand of the Lord. Job illustrates that suffering is real and that God is sovereign over it. I had mentioned um, some references from Ephesians. I don't think I put the Ephesians 2.10 reference in there, but Ephesians 1.11 is, uh, is on your verse packet. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. 2.10 says that God prepared good works beforehand that we should walk in them. So there is a category for innocent suffering, quote-unquote. John 9 is also a good illustration of that. The man born blind. The disciples, sort of like Job's friends, want to know where we lay the sin blame for this. Rabbi, who sinned this man or his parents that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. That is not Jesus saying, this man and his parents are sinless. That is Jesus saying, the reason for which this man was born blind is that the works of God might be displayed in him. God is pleased to display his works through this means. So think about that in the suffering in your own life. God is pleased to display His mighty works through that. And that is what gives us the hope of counting it all joy because among the things that He is doing in that is maturing us and, and um, shaping our faith. Timothy mentioned the good that God did in Joseph's life in the time of his imprisonment in preparing him for what he did with him after releasing him. That's just in the life of Joseph. In the life of uh, the people of God, what was he doing? He was delivering them from famine. They were starving to death, and he was preparing them to have a place to go to be provided for. He was saving an entire people group and keeping his promises, ultimately, that there would be a serpent head crusher coming, ultimately, in the Lord Jesus. So, 
we don't always get all the, all the answers of why God does what he does. If you had asked me six months after my brother died what that was all about, you know, I don't know. Bad stuff happens, I guess. People have heart disease and they die. God has been kind to me for, for me to be able to see just some in my own life and in the lives of my parents of things that he has brought about in the wake of that. And in that I rejoice, not in the thing itself, but in the goodness of God and the display of his character in the midst of it. Was there a question back here? Yeah, I mean, I think you see that in the early church, right? Like They were celebrating that they had been counted worthy to suffer for the sake of Christ. Even in the illustration that you used, Marion, I think there is a recognition of the objectivity of the suffering. What's different is their attitude towards it. They, I think what you're describing is the embracing of this as a means of the Lord glorifying himself and being pleased to use that for the sake of the gospel. But that will not be eternal. That, that, that has a termination, right? So um, what is subjective about suffering is the experiences and the mindset and the worldview that we bring to it and our interaction with it. Um, but the, uh, the harm of person against person for the sake of their following Christ, I think is objective suffering, and it has a termination. But if that were to happen to me, would I have that same Christ-exalting attitude? I mean, I hope so, but again, one of the things that suffering does, and we'll talk about this more next week, is it reveals what's inside. It, it presses me, and what's, what's in the heart is going to come out. And pain and suffering do that more, I think, and I think you can probably testify to this in your own life, than ease and comfort, um, which is a little frightening, you know? There's, what's, this is kind of a silly example, but, you know, the idea of, like the, what, like, the man cold? You know, men are, like, the worst patients ever. We get a little cold, and we're just, you know, horrible people. Um, when I'm physically sick, you know, my wife would probably have some things to say about, about me. I'm thankful I don't get sick very often. Uh, my family is probably more thankful that I don't get sick often. So does that answer your question? I think there's an objective nature to the suffering, but our response and interaction with it is going to differ from person to person. We're going to bring our own baggage and things into it. Um, So I think what I, I think I'm, I'm having a better understanding of what you're talking about now. Um, we, I think we can hold both to be true. 
I think we can graciously be granted to see the good things God is doing. He's probably doing a trillion things that we don't know about, right? We, sometimes we get a peek behind the curtain, sometimes we don't. Insofar as you're able to see some of those good things that the Lord is doing in the midst of these things, praise the Lord. That's, that can be a help and encouragement to people to actually see the, the fruitfulness of what God is doing in the midst of while he's doing it. He's under no obligation to do that. Um, so if we see that, then praise the Lord. The, the tools that he is using to do that, if those things are coming to an end, I think we can still say that is suffering, even if my experience of it is graciously being used by God for me to see the good he's doing from it, and that changes my experience of it. Does that make sense? I think we can still say, yes, that is suffering, even though, praise the Lord, he has given me so much comfort and encouragement and help in the midst of it that I can count it all joy when I face this. That doesn't mean the trials aren't trials. That, I think that's the point that I would distinguish there. Um, lastly, and this is going to be um, kind of the focus of next week, so I'm going to try to get through these real quick, and we're going to be reiterating these things um, in session two. Some other passages in the Bible to help us think about suffering. Suffering reveals the sovereign and good intentions of God and the evil intentions of sinful people and Satan. We've talked about Joseph. You know, he's talking to his brothers. You meant this for evil. God meant it for good. Um, Exodus 9, 16. The uh, Lord says, But for this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. So you have Pharaoh doing all sorts of horrible things and God saying, yeah, I raised you up to, to show my power. We see the different wills at work. Whose will is primary? We would say the Lord's is. Romans 8, 28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. I love um, the, the passages from Acts. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man tested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, okay, here are the two wills, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God intended for this to happen. You evil people wanted to crucify and kill him. Acts 4, 27 and 28. Truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. Okay, okay here are the two wills. All those people gathered together to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. He's not excusing people for their sinful choices. They will be judged for it or those, those sins will be borne by Christ. But this is in the predetermined will of God. You say, how does that work? When, when you have it all figured out, let me know. Um, suffering is a means of God demonstrating His grace and compassion. The book of Ruth is a good example of this. We see the goodness and compassion of God demonstrated not despite suffering, but in the midst of it. Suffering prompts the people of God to trust in His ultimate justice. Romans 12, 19 says, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. We believe in God's ultimate justice on sin and the end of suffering. We are freed then not to seek and pursue vengeance. Suffering detaches believers from worldliness and presses them further into the Lord. 
And then lastly, Christ's sufferings in his life and death make him our only sufficient sacrifice for sins and our sympathetic great high priest. I'm looking forward to our sermon series in Hebrews coming up next year. It's a, one of my favorite books of the Bible, if there is such a thing as a, it's okay to have a favorite book of the Bible. Um, but I think it's, it's helpful for us to see in the life and death of Christ, certainly the center of that is his atoning work. He is a substitutionary sacrifice for our sins. How wonderful it is also that on the back end of that, we have one who is sympathetic to us in our weakness and suffering. That he isn't detached from it, that he walked through it, he has conquered it, and he is our hope in the midst of it. And so I think that's a good place for us to end. And all the good things that we might say about God's purposes for suffering, he did not exempt himself from it. But came in Jesus Christ to walk through it, that he might reign over it and deliver us from it. Um, any last questions or comments as we close? Yes, that's going to be um, a main emphasis of our time next week. The, the use of suffering in molding us more and more into the image of Christ. The hope that we are justified now and are being sanctified into the image of Christ. God is pleased to use suffering for those good purposes. And uh, there is pain in the pruning, but glory at the end. Uh, so with that, let's pray and uh, we'll be finished. Father, we're so thankful that in you we have one who knows and understands deeply the reality of suffering. Thank you that in your son Jesus we have a sympathetic high priest. He was not ashamed to call us brothers. We thank you that suffering is not pointless. We recognize we are going to face it in many different ways. Some in here, even today, going through hardship that maybe only they know about or that is on the horizon and will be greeting them soon. We recognize these things are not good and of themselves, but we can rejoice in them because they come from your good and loving hand. We know that you are pleased to use these things in our life for our good. All things work together for good for those who love you and are called according to your purpose. So in that we rejoice. Help us to lean on you more and more. May the sufferings of this life not push us from you, but push us further into you. We ask that for your glory's sake. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you live in the Tuscaloosa area and are looking for a church, we'd love for you to visit. Our service times are Sunday mornings at 10.30 and Wednesday nights at 6.15.